Welcome to the Commonwealth Magazine podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. And I'm Jim Aloisi, co-host, also a board member of Transit Matters. On the podcast today, we're joined by Dave Perry. He's a Framingham commuter rail activist, a member of the Framingham Worcester Working Group, which he'll explain to us later, and also Andy Manat, another board member here at Transit Matters. Hello. Hello. Thanks, everyone, for being with us. So um, readers of Commonwealth uh, Magazine Online might recall that in late February, Transit Matters uh, published uh, an article regarding the uh, decision to make Auburndale commuter rail station accessible. The idea of making that station accessible, of course, is uh, an appropriate um, initiative because all of our commuter stations and subway stations and should be accessible to all. What Transit Matters had discovered uh, however, was that the plan that was being uh, proposed after 100% design uh, would have made the station accessible, but would have done so in a way that we believed would have significantly degraded the quality of service along that commuter rail line. So we wrote about that, and we tried to propose, uh, we tried to both highlight the issue and then propose a constructive alternative approach uh, which would involve uh, two, a two-platform solution. We, we, we thought, Josh and I thought that it would be informative to have um, Dave and Andy on today because they led the effort to, uh, to, to uh, write and develop that article. Dave writes a very well-regarded blog on, on these commuter rail issues as well. And uh, so we thought we'd begin by asking you guys to talk a little bit about how... Uh, the Auburndale station situation came to our attention, why we thought it was um, appropriate to write about it, and why we thought it was appropriate to bring that to the attention of both the folks at the T and others. Thanks, Jim. Uh, the Auburndale station redesign started a long time ago with some community involvement, people advocating for accessible uh, station Right now, the station is on uh, one platform only, and it's not accessible. You have to climb down a rickety old staircase, and then it's a, uh, a low-level platform. So the T moved for the, the community uh, and the politicians in, in and around Newton uh, worked to get funding and uh, moved the, the project through the MBTA, and the MBTA at first came out with a design that, that resulted in a high-level platform on that side only, where it is right now. However, that's on the opposite side from where the village is. And so the community kind of said, hey, that's not really great. We don't want to have to go over a bridge and, and have to go over the tracks to get to the new platform. We'd rather have a platform that was nearer to the village. So the MBTA went back and designed a platform that's nearer to the village, but only, again, one platform on the, 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 a two-track uh, train line. And they had pro the MBTA came up with this idea to add a switch so that the trains could theoretically switch back and forth uh, to, to access this station. But like you say, we at Transit Matters, we kind of looked at that and scratched our head and said, hey, well, hold on a minute. You can't just switch trains back and forth while they're traveling uh, back and forth along the line for, for regular service. So having only 
a station with, with one platform, while it's great, it's accessible, it was a beautiful design, that really isn't going to work operationally. And so we raised that issue at the public meeting and then through the, the uh, article and through my blog and, and, uh, and, and kind of put a stop to, to uh, what was going to be a, a, a mistake, really. So when you say you put a stop to it, one of the reasons we're talking about it today is because a little over two weeks ago, I think on the 15th of May is when Commonwealth Magazine um, published that the um, Secretary of Transportation did, did confirm that this uh, station in the current design that you just described had been put on, on hold and they were going to go back to the drawing board and basically scrap the current design and come up with something that was is probably going to be a two-platform design. Um, now, I think it might be good to rewind a little bit and, and understand that there's three Newton platforms that all have, three Newton stations that all have platforms only on one side of the tracks. And so what you just described was we've, we've got, initially since the 50s, we've had three stations with platforms on the south or inbound side of the tracks. And we were going to, the plan was to move uh, this platform to the north side of the tracks. Um, and, and it seems like probably people would probably say, well, you have one platform before, one platform after. And so you've just described, Dave, how what ends up needing to happen then is now you have to, having to, you know, S back and forth between these tracks. And the problem being that if you're running lots of trains that are tightly scheduled, it's very difficult because you've got an inbound and outbound track. And now if you're trying to drop off and pick up on one side and switch back and forth, now you've messed up your schedule, which I think what we what Andy had gotten to also was something about how that ends up leading to less service for that station. Uh, yeah, that's right. So uh, it looked like it was basically going to be infeasible to run the uh, peak direction trains to have the peak direction trains stop at that station uh, because they would, if you try to do use that new switch that they're going to spend $6.7 million on, then they would end up uh, basically conflicting with trains coming the other direction. So you would have to not use those things, which means that you would lose all the peak direction service, uh, which means like no going into the city in the morning and no coming home, home in the afternoon which is obviously the uh, largest part, part of the ridership. That sort of parallels how right now, since there's only access to one of the tracks from um, the single platform at each of those stations, you don't get any reverse direction service. So in the morning, you can't come out to Newton, and in the evening, you can't go into Boston. So right now, due to the fact that we have a platform only on one side of the tracks for the Newton stations, they really can only get peak service. So in the morning, they get inbound service, and in the evening, evening they get outbound service. But it's very difficult to go downtown in the evening from Newton, uh, if you want to go to the symphony or, or if you had an, an evening job or something like that, because the one platform on, on the inbound side, it just can't accommodate service going in both directions. And, and what you just described, Andy, was that commuter rail already doesn't have very good off-peak service. So now you've taken a, a platform, a station that only had uh, peak service, now you put it on the wrong side of the tracks so that it doesn't even get peak service now, and we know we have really bad off-peak service. So now you've made it accessible to people who are mobility impaired, but you've taken away the trains they need to access? Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the, that's kind of the, the irony of the situation here is that we're building, or the proposal was to build a, a beautiful, high-platform, you know, fully modernized and accessible station, but as you point out, the service would be, would be really... Uh, deprecated the 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 solution that we came up with 
and and I got to give credit out to to Ari, and I'm gonna Ari Masker his last name. Thank you. Um, he came up with really an innovative idea here was to put use that money that was allocated and earmarked for the switch, and and use that money for the for the second platform, and you could put a platform on both sides for about the same amount of money, have some bridges over, and then you would be able to get both the peak service for the commuters who are going going in in the morning, coming home at night, and then also get the off-peak ridership or the reverse commute ridership, people coming out from the city in the morning or going into the city in the evening. So there's an accessible design. It's about the same amount of money, and it, it, um, it, 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 it's, the, it's the, the obvious solution. So hopefully the MBTA is, is looking at that right now and is going to, to consider that going forward. And you talked about money and reallocating the money from the prior design to what we hope happens in the future, the current design to what, what will happen in the future, hopefully something similar to what Ari proposed uh, as the two-platform solution. What, how much money was allocated for this project, and how was it allocated between the building of the platform and the, I know money was allocated for the switching that was required? Uh, let's see. So I know it was like six point seven million for the switches, and was it three or four million for the platform and related items, adding up to I think about twelve million altogether. Is that right, Dave? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep. So uh, more than half of the project was being spent just on the switching. <clears throat> right. It was. It was kind of a strange, uh, strange solution that they came up with to put that money into a switch that really. Um, we've heard that, that nobody really wants it's it's um it's it's nice to have extra switches we, we love to have uh, you know the extra ability to, to switch trains around problems but this switch in particular is very close to another switch just west of auburndale and it really was going to be uh quite the white elephant this is where i'd like to get people who are listening to this podcast to think a little bit about what went on here because what went on here is really a reflection of how people are thinking about commuter rail. And they're not thinking about commuter rail as if it were regional rail. Now imagine again what we've said. Three stations in Newton. This station in Auburndale was being revamped to be more accessible. And the solution that was proposed was to take the one platform that exists and change the, the location of it so that you had to put in an expensive switch called an interlocking that would have degraded service on the line and would have probably forever have prevented the kind of reverse flow rail system that we're all thinking needs to happen as we advance into a more sustainable transportation system. So what we've done, what these folks have done, is really highlighted that we can't look at, at solving one issue like accessibility in a vacuum or in a silo, but you've got to deal with these issues in a more holistic and comprehensive way, taking into account, in all instances, improving service. Yandy, t talk a little bit about why Auburndale. Auburndale Station, we discovered, um, actually has some history to it. And um, it's sort of representative, I think, of decisions that were made very early on, where that was a beautiful station, decisions made mid-20th century because of the turnpike, and now the need for stations like that to really play a larger role in a regional rail vision. Yeah, that's right. So um, like in much of the Boston area, these commuter rail lines uh, were first built way back in the early to mid-1800s. 
Um, and by the late 1800s, they had four tracks on what's now the Framingham-Worcester line. It was under different ownership. Of course, the MBTA didn't exist then. Um, but, you know, it had, had really good service. Um, with four tracks, you can be running both local and express trains. Um, and they had the, the line, that the railroad that had ran this had a lot of money. They hired H.H. Richardson, who was a famous Boston architect, uh, designed one of the churches in Copley Square, um, to do a whole bunch of stations along this line. He did, uh, I don't know, eight of them maybe, and then I think passed away, and then his firm did another couple dozen in a similar style. Um, anyway, so you look at those, and it's this you know, nicely designed station. There, there's four tracks, so presumably they ran pretty good service. And uh, so you know, oh, they, they probably had lots of service. I'm sure there was service in both directions, unlike what we have now. Um, then in the uh, uh, mid-20th century, they, uh, the state decided that had we could had put in the Mass Pike and where was a great place to take space from that didn't involve destroying any buildings while well, they'd take space from um, some of uh, the train tracks. So they took out that nice old station. Uh, they built a highway right next to this. Now what there is is the Mass Pike and then uh, a little bit of grass barrier, then a, uh, a metal hole fence, and then this uh, kind of grubby concrete platform. So you, when you're standing there, you're hearing all of this loud noise from the highway all the time, and, and uh, it's a pretty unpleasant place to wait, and you get much worse service than there was you know, 100 or more years ago. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting, like Jim mentions and Andy describes, to see, to use Auburndale as, a, as the example of, of how mobility has, has changed for over almost 200 years now. You started out with trains, you went, you know, you, we, we switched to cars, we built the Mass Pike. The thinking was, well, we don't need this train line anymore. Well, we'll keep these, these little podunk stations with little, you know, wooden shelters that are, that are no better than sheds. And, and everybody's going to be in cars. And now, you know, that's not going to work. You can't, you can't just keep building uh, lanes of, of highway everywhere. So now we're back to the idea of let's, let's use this rail uh, and, and let's maximize the use of this rail and get more stations and get more people, get more accessibility onto it. Well, how are we going to do that? We need to do it right. And like I mentioned, you know, at the public meeting that we had, the risk here of doing something wrong is it locks you into something that probably can't get changed for another 20, 30, maybe even 50 years. So it really does you know, become very important to do this to get it right now, build two platforms, make, maximize the, the accessibility and the operational flexibility of these stations in Newton and throughout the, the Commonwealth so that we can get good train service to, to, to really move forward with kind of that regional rail vision going forward. Now, when we, I want to move forward to more about the, the Framingham-Worcester line uh, more broadly, but I also want to reverse just a second to talk about high-level platforms and what that means for anyone who's maybe not, not aware. Low-level low, low platforms is just sort of basically ground level, and you have to walk up the steps, you know, to get on, get on the train, right? And a high-level platform would be boarding, if you think of how the subway is, it'd be boarding just the same level, the door's open, you just walk straight in. Uh, that's obviously much more accessible for anyone who has mobility issues. Um, but the other factor there um, that helps out is because it's quicker to board, the trains can move along more quickly, and you can have more service on the line, more trains can run through in the same amount of time. Um, 
when we we're talking about the budget, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, high-level platforms, if we're going to go to a station that has a low-level platform, replace it with a high-level, that's going to cost us about 3 to $5 million per platform. Is that? And I think that's why you could get two platforms for that same budget that we had already allocated for the station. Yeah, it's there's some there are some um, comparable stations that have been done recently. Yawkey Station was done for around 15 million. South Acton was done for around I think 12 or 13 million. The 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 added expense you know above just doing the platforms is you need what's called vertical circulation. You need an, a way to get from one platform to the other, and and from whatever's on one side of the tracks to the other side. So you need elevators, ramps. You know, you know, a bridge, uh, so that adds some considerable expense onto the cost of just the platforms. But yeah, we're thinking these 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 stations are all coming in around you know all out all in, you know, without stations that need a lot of track work or need a lot of modifications. It's in the ten to fifteen million dollar range. That's that's what seems to be a consistent a consistent, which is threat. not too far over what they were allocating for a single platform. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So now speaking about the Framingham Worcester line, I know Dave from reading doing some reading on your blog that they recently had a major improvement um, because I think for a long time we had a single track. Um, so can you explain what the big improvement was recently? Again, it goes back to that vision back in the 60s of everybody's going to switch to cars and we won't need these train lines anymore. The um, From what we can tell, and, and I haven't found anything to confirm this, but when the Mass Pike extension was built, they kind of des- they, they left two tracks alongside the Mass Pike, and everybody that drives on the Pike can see those two tracks. And they go from, you know, the Western Interchange with 128 all the way into Boston. And from what we can tell, it looks like in the 60s they decided to kind of designate one of those tracks as the freight track and one of those tracks as the passenger track. And that kind of explains why there's a a platform or a station in the three Newtons on only one track. That was the passenger track. The other track carried the freight trains into what's called Beacon Park. That's the big freight yard right next to the interchange um, in Alston, Brighton. Um, it used to be a freight yard. Now it's an, an empty space, and, and Harvard has bought it and is going to be doing um, development there. But right there where that freight yard was, the, the passenger track continued on into Boston, and that second track was, was designated for freight, so it went into the yard. And it wasn't, and it's not, it hasn't been since the 1960s up until just this year, it hasn't been uh, available to have passenger trains uh, travel on it in, in that little stretch, about a mile from around the area of the new Boston Landing Station all the way into um, or near the Yawkey Station. So that uh, lack of a, of a double track on that segment meant that you were bottlenecking the, 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 the train line. And if you imagine the Mass Pike, think about the Mass Pike. You have two directions. You have eastbound and westbound. Well, let's say you took a mile of that Mass Pike and cut it out and said, all right, well, cars can only go you know, in only one direction, and you'd have to alternate. Well, you can imagine that the Mass Pike would become gridlocked pretty quick. And that same thing happens on the, happened on the Framingham-Worcester line. It was really a constraint in scheduling train service because you had this one segment where there was only one track, and you had to, had to create a schedule that allowed trains not to conflict in that one segment. With the construction of Boston Landing and the and the um, 
abandonment of the of the freight yard, the MBTA was able to put a second track in that segment. So now, since April, we've had a second track for the first time since the 1960s, all the way from Boston to Worcester. That's a huge improvement. It's going to reduce the amount of delays. It's going to improve the um, available uh, frequency for trains. You can have more trains because they won't be conflicted right in that one stretch. So that is a huge improvement um, that, that, you know, that, that's really good. Um, maybe it's worth talking about since uh, not everyone's used to thinking about uh, trains and single tracks and so on. Think about if sometimes you're uh, you're driving down even a street that's not very busy, and they're doing some utility work. So they have one side of the street closed, and they have a, a police officer or a worker with a uh, you know a, a sign saying for people from one direction to stop, and then you're stopped for a while waiting for cars from the other direction to go. And you find that even on a street that's not very busy, you can end up with pretty big backups, uh, you know, and a surprising amount of delay. And I think that's. I think that's a good analogy for what was going on with that single track section. It seems like it's only a little bit of road that you took out, so it shouldn't be a problem, but it ends up being a lot bigger problem than that small segment. But I think people need to also focus on, and Auburndale, again, is, illuminates this larger issue, um, is that we are now paying the price for decisions that were made uh, in, in, in the 1960s. Uh, a variety of things happened then. One was the basic dismantling of the private sector passenger rail system. Uh, with the introduction of the interstate highway system, federally funded, state supported, and as Dave has pointed out, the, the basically auto-centric environment of the 50s and 60s, the private sector that used to be in the passenger rail business went out of business, and it was the states, the states like Massachusetts, that saved the, any idea of passenger rail and took on the job of operating what we now call commuter rail. But they were left with uh, an infrastructure that hadn't been invested in for a long time and that had been degraded by influences like the building of the Turnpike Authority, uh, the Turnpike. So now we're in an era where generally our values lend themselves to sustainable mobility, where we have basically built out the interstate highway system and the urban highway system to a point where it is highly unlikely that it will ever be expanded, and where we need to look at viable alternatives to get people to and from destinations. One of the reasons why Transit Matters has been engaged so deeply in this issue is that we want people to stop thinking about commuter rail as commuter rail that just hauls people in in the morning and hauls them back at night. Instead, we want people to start thinking about this as a regional rail system that is vibrant throughout the day, that has what we call reverse peak movements. And so we are very vigilant, and the vigilance of these guys in particular, in preventing a mistake to happen in Auburndale that would, as they've pointed out, for, for, for a long time, have prevented the kind of efficient reverse peak uh, rail system that we need to begin to migrate to if we are going to truly have uh, a mobility system that works for everybody. That's the, th those are the issues that are at the core of why something like fixing accessibility in Little Auburndale Station becomes a huge issue for the entire region, and particularly the Framingham Worcester line. When we think, one of the things that kind of sticks out to me is, well, how, how does a station like this, a design that was going to 
make service on the line um, um, worse off? How does it get to 100% complete design? There's got to be somebody who's keeping an eye on the the future state, the vision of this Framingham Worcester line, as well as the whole network, and saying, well, here's here's the 10 things that we are prioritizing to do to this line, and we need to upgrade the station, and here's how it fits into the overall vision. I get the idea, uh, Dave, from reading your blog and and, and and listening to this conversation that there's not a vision like that. But I know that you're on something called the Framingham Worcester Working Group. So what is that working group? What do you do? Do you contribute to this vision? Is there? Tell us about that. The Worcester Working Group uh, came about as a result. Um, well, let's back up. I started a, a, my Twitter feed and, and, and uh, started a blog talking about things that I knew about the Framingham Worcester line, trying to share my knowledge with fellow commuters so they could kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of what was going on behind the scenes from the way that I understood it with a little knowledge of train operations and an understanding of how the MBTA was managing the Framingham Worcester line. So in um, in the summer of, of 2016, I kind of noticed something um, th- that I thought could be improved upon in terms of the scheduling and the frequency of trains. So I put together a petition and I got 600 signatures on this petition to kind of just move some move some scheduling around and, and get a better uh, service. In, in particular, taking one train, which was going from Worcester all the way into Boston as a, and making all the stops, and breaking that up, making, making it, getting two pieces of equipment to run, two, two separate trains, one is an express and one is a local, so that nobody would lose service, but we'd get better service for everyone. Um, so when I turned that, that petition over to the politicians and to the MBTA, uh, the MBTA noticed that there was a lot of, of activism and a lot of interest in, in this topic, um, both from the politicians and from, and from the ridership. And so uh, Brian Shortsleeve, the, the acting general manager of the MBTA, invited me to join this, what he was uh, in, inaugurating as, as the Worcester Line Working Group. And the, and the original idea was to get together the, the relevant people that were interested, both the MBTA staff, Keolis staff, uh, ridership people like me, and then also the politicians, and sit down in a room together and discuss all of the different things that were going on, all of the different constraints that prevented um, the MBTA from making really grand uh, changes and, and to talk about things like what we just talked about, the double track through Beacon Park Freight Yard. Um, the, the different kind of constraints, and then all collaborate on putting together what we thought was kind of the best schedule that we could come up with at the present time. So we worked through that. We had um, we, we came up with a, a, a change to the schedule. We published that, had, had public hearings, um, brought those ideas back, and, and, and finalized a schedule that just went into effect on, on May 22nd. So the original vision of the working group was primarily structured around that that single schedule change in in May but that's the that's the opportunity here is to keep this working group going that's what I'm interested in keeping this working group going finding out what are the bigger ideas what can be done where can we um, you know where can we have input on what the process is and, and staying engaged with that process to to, to expand the the uh, expand the, the the future vision of of what the Framingham Worcester line can be like. Can you just tell our listeners uh, where they can find your blog on the internet? Yeah, sure. If you just Google Dave's 
Framingham Worcester blog, it, it'll come right up. The, the address is actually F-R-A-M-W-O-R-M-B-T-A.Weebly.com. But uh, again, you just Google Dave's uh, blog and, and it'll come right up. So I know that you, you mentioned, so we talked about the double tracking issue. We talked about how there needs to be more stations with platforms on both sides. Um, I know there's been a lot of rail work being done on the Framingham Worcester line to, I believe, allow it to the, the, the rail to be at a higher class um, and, and not be warping in, in the summertime uh, and cracking maybe in the winter. And so it should be able to run trains at a faster uh, speed at some point soon. Um, what are the other upgrades that need to happen to this line, um, maybe even getting into things like electrification, to allow us to have um, significantly faster service? I think it ought to be, ideally, we ought to be able to have service that's maybe even a third faster than it is now. Yeah, there's a lot of things that can happen, both short-term and long-term. We've talked about the idea of, of high platforms, high-level platforms, where that uh, really speeds up the boarding, cuts down on that dwell time. How long does a train spend stopped? And if you can cut down that dwell time, you can increase the, the or you can reduce the duration of the trip. Um, you know, obviously that's expensive. Um, other, other ideas, um, you know, adding more tracks, getting back to the three or four tracks that we had uh, back 50, 60 years ago, there is still space in some areas where that could be done. Uh, obviously, that's a big capital project, but it's something that we should be talking about. And that kind of highlights something else about this Auburndale and Newton discussion is that, like you mentioned, there's really no grand vision. Um, the Auburndale station design came about really driven by local activism and local people just focused on what they wanted in their town, and rightfully so. They had a bad station, and they wanted to make it better. There's no, no complaint there. But like you mentioned, there needs to be kind of more holistic view of, of what can happen and, and what, can, what can be done um, in terms of long-term improvements. Now, this line is, I believe, the second busiest line uh, in the system, in the computer rail system. In 2016, it was actually the busiest. We, okay. got, we got number one so it's been in 2016. Competing with the Providence-Staten line, I think. Correct, yeah. And are there working groups for the other lines, or is this, is this sort of the only one? No, this is the only one. Um, it's, it's interesting. to. I've had a lot of people inquire with me from the other lines, you know, how can we uh, find somebody like you for, for the other lines? And, and I don't know of any, of, of any other... Uh, activists that are uh, that are quite as uh, passionate about it as me. And I don't know if we pointed passionate out. Passionate or foolish as I This is not I your am. full-time job. You're, you're no. fully employed elsewhere, no. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so this is, I think this gets back to um, one of the reasons that we do this podcast, that we do um, some of the writing that we do with Transit Matters and the other act, activism that we do is, is more about understanding that there has to be general education in the public and the ridership uh, because the, a lot of times this vision, for whatever reason, staffing issues, political reasons, isn't necessarily coming from the top. So if we have more educated riders, then they can impress upon their politicians uh, and the administration to provide better service that's more visionary. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is lots of times, you know, we hear from people who they want better service on the T, but they don't know they don't know the specifics of what to ask for. So, for instance, you know, I've talked to some people who who want better service on the Fairmount line, which ought to be a high-frequency, fast uh, uh, line that, that serves, you know, not just, uh, you know, twice-a-day commuters, but people all throughout the day and evenings and weekends. And, you know, they they know they want better service, and uh, 
uh, you know, there's some technical stuff about, you know, how can we get to better service? So, you know, the goals are those of the community and riders as a whole. And, you know, then and with some extra information, they can and get to ask for the sorts of things that they want. So, for instance, uh, electrifying thing there to uh, get rid of diesel emissions, uh, you know, which are a big cause for concern for, uh, for health issues in, in the Fairmount Corridor. I just want to say a word before we, we uh, finish today about accessibility, um, because I know that there's some frustration on the part of a few folks that um, by having the T um, stop the, the, the old idea, which was a bad idea, and, re and revisit the idea, that it will take a, perhaps a longer period of time uh, to get Auburndale Station accessible. We're committed to accessibility. Um, Andy and I were just at the Access Advisory Committee for the T Summit, where I gave the keynote address and Andy was on a panel. So there's no question from a transit matters perspective that we care about accessibility very much. But our point has been we can't go forward on plans that might make a station accessible in a vacuum and also create worse service for everybody. Um, there ought to be ways in which people can, again, see all of these issues as connected so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And we'll continue to push to make sure that Auburndale Station gets done as quickly as possible because the plan, uh, the idea that we've put forward, Dave and Ari and Andy have put forward, um, is not a complicated plan, nor is it a highly expensive plan. And so we're hopeful that, uh, that we can continue to collaborate with the stakeholders and the T to get something done in an accelerated way. Right, and I, I would say, you know, there's, there's two other stations in Newton that are not accessible and are basically the same, the same poor conditions, uh, both in terms of unpleasant to use and, uh, you know, inaccessible um, that we would like to see uh, moved along quickly as well. You know, we're talking about Auburndale accessibility because um, a, a person uh, who was in the right place at the right time to ask uh, politicians, I think decades ago now, for some accessibility improvements for Auburndale where they lived, asked about that. But, you know, we, we need to also be pushing for those kinds of improvements for all other stations. Before we sign off, um, Andy, I know uh, we, we plugged um, Dave. We let him talk about his blog. I know you have a website, too. Some people might be interested in checking it out. Would you tell us about it? Uh, sure. So the T has, has information that lets you see when buses and trains and subway trains are arriving. Um, so I have a website, mbtainfo.com, that allows you to look up that information. Okay. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, we can't wait to be back again next time. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. We'll see you soon.